Hello again, welcome back to the podcast. I uh, hope all of you are doing well. Today we're moving into the world of philosophy again, and we're going to be talking about Friedrich Nietzsche today. But before we do start to talk too much about them, about him, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, in a lot of ways, the same things that are done with the Bible and other religious texts are done with the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, people will often take a very powerful passage, because he's known for writing these very uh, powerful clear passages, and then they'll make a lot more out of it than what it is. They'll take it out of context, they'll turn it into something else, they'll kind of seize it as a way of proving whatever it is they want to prove and then run with it. You know, much the same way that people will quote religious texts out of context in order to prove what they're trying to say. Well, with religious texts as, you know, and with Friedrich Nietzsche, you really have to read a lot of him. Uh, you, you can't just read one passage and then have an idea uh, and know what he's all about. Because a lot of times what it seems like he's saying on the surface, once you dig into him a little further, you find that what he's saying has a much uh, deeper significance and it maybe even a different significance than what you think it means. So I do want to caution you that as you get into studying him, don't try to just like pick out passages and go with just those passages. You really have to read whole texts of his. You should also be reading different translations. One of the things about him is that he wrote in German. So anything you read of his, if you don't read German, you're going to have to read in your native language. For example, I can read English or some French, so I've read his texts in translation. And one of the things that I've tried to do is to get a hold of different translators' uh, versions, different different ways of translating the exact same text. Um, because in looking at the different ones, you do start to notice that the translations often tend to reflect as much of the idea of the translator as they did of Friedrich Nietzsche. And this actually is something that he would have uh, expected. He would have even expected this in a non-translation. Uh, one of the things about Nietzsche's training is he doesn't train to be a philosopher. He's a philologist. He's basically an expert in language and in uh, old, uh, in particular, in um, old Greek texts. So he's he's an expert in Greek writings, Greek philosophy, Greek uh, literature, Greek drama, and he sort of realizes as a philologist that what he's reading uh, isn't what was originally written. You know, these things are put together by from different editions from different times and put into different translations and translated back into the Greek. And so there's a whole lot of changing that goes on. So what you're getting when you read anything, like if you read Plato's Republic, you're not getting Plato's Republic the way it was originally written. Even if you read it in the original language, you're still reading it from a construction of various different... Um, different uh, editions of it, various dish, uh, different uh, workings of it. Part of the reason for this is that it wasn't like now where you have the printing press and where you have printed copies that are complete and available of everything. You have, you know, 
people that have handwritten copies and copies of copies of copies. And sometimes if the person didn't fully understand what they were copying, couldn't read it, couldn't get it to make sense, they might have to alter it a little bit for it to make sense. But aside from that, Nietzsche also kind of puts forth the idea that even if we did have a perfect copy, even if we had a handwritten copy by Plato himself, we still don't have the ability to read it exactly the same way that they read it. And he's one of the people who realizes, uh, you know, as some of the other philosophers, that our time period actually shapes us much more than we think. You know, we bring a lot to things. A lot of what we do is interpretation. And he starts out, you know, sort of as a career of someone who's interpreting literature and realizes that this interpretation happens in all of our, you know, all of our connections with reality. And he starts to see that, you know, there isn't one reality that everyone shares and they don't share it in different, you know, in all different time periods. Um, each time period, there's differences in reality. Now, this is something that's not so strange for the 20th century because we've had a lot of writers, we have a lot of writers that talk about this. You know, when I read the Iliad or the Odyssey, I don't read it with the same mind that someone would have read it, you know, when it was originally composed. I'm bringing with me my time period. I'm bringing with me all of the other things that I know you know, experiences I have. So even within a time period, different people have different experiences. So one of the things that Nietzsche starts to work into his wider philosophy is the idea that everything is, is somewhat of an interpretation when we're dealing with reality. And you can't set down the one interpretation for all time. And this is one of his arguments against some of the other philosophers, is he feels that they want to sort of set down the solid foundation of, of knowledge, the so, you know solid foundation of wisdom, and he doesn't believe this is possible. And he doesn't believe this is possible because we don't have the same grasp of the world and the foundations will always be changing. Now, one of the things that this does as you move into the 20th century, uh, this this does kind of back up a lot of the relativism that people have. Well, you know, everything is just relative. And Nietzsche did hold that point um, that there, that for most things, it's pretty relative. Um, there are lines, though, that you would have to draw. Um, everything isn't relative because we know if you you know, uh, throw a person off a 50-story building, it doesn't matter if this is 500 years ago, 50 years ago, five years ago, or five minutes ago, the outcome is going to be the same. So there are certain things that aren't relative. But a lot of the way we perceive the world is relative. And a lot of the ways we shape our reality is relative, um, not only to our time period, but also to our language. Now, Nietzsche is one of the philosophers that really starts to dig in a little deeper with the idea of language shapes our reality. <clears throat> Some of the earlier philosophers had gotten a little of the ideas of you know, imprecise language keeps us from being able to see things as clearly, but 
Nietzsche really starts to realize that whatever language you speak is going to also shape your perceptions of the world. It's going to, language is going to start to tell you which things are important and pay attention to, and which things are things you're going to basically ignore. How does it do this? Well, think about it like this. If something is particularly important to a society, they will probably have lots of words around that particular thing or that particular event, lots of ways of describing it. Uh, if something is seen as relatively unimportant or off the radar, to use a common expression now, um, you may have few or no words that describe that. And so your language is going to shape the way you see the world because you're going to be while you're experiencing the world through your senses the way you're processing it is through language and and this is definitely something that this idea is definitely something that takes off much more in the 20th century in the 21st century now another idea that i want to go into this is one of his shocking ideas um is the idea that uh, the the statement that he makes in quite a few places god is dead now, for a lot of people, you know, this is sort of something where they either just dismiss it as the rantings of an atheist, or they see it as um, him trying to say that, well, God used to be alive, but we, you know, have now killed him off with the way we're living now. Uh, but if you actually read into what he's saying, uh, it, it's it's much deeper than that. It's sort of the idea that uh, at one time in our history, we were much more able to just live by religious belief um, because we were isolated, because we didn't run into constant, you know, other tribes, other belief systems um, is, is one of the reasons, you know, each group was somewhat isolated with their own religion. But the other thing is that this is sort of also a product of the Enlightenment and the fact that we have now an alternative way of looking at the world. It's not just religious. So we have these differences of religious beliefs all mingling together, and we also have beliefs that are not based on religion. Um, religion beliefs that are based more on science, re beliefs that are based more on observation and experimentation. So one of the things that he's saying more than anything when he says God is dead is he's saying our ability to believe it and live by it the same way that people had in the past is gone. Um, we've, we've moved beyond that. We've moved into a period in history. We've moved into you know, a, a, a time period of turmoil and conflict. You've got to remember Darwin was already writing before this and, you know, other uh, writers of science were writing, you know, before this and at the same time. And so these ideas have sort of entered the mainstream. And he sees this as a problem. Um, and the reason he sees this as a problem is not particularly because he's looking at it from a religious perspective, he's looking at it from a perspective of survival, a perspective of people, you know, wanting to kind of uh, drift into what he calls nihilism, sort of the belief that, well, nothing really matters. Um, and, and this was one of the things that 
he saw a great need to fight against, especially for the individual. You know, you can't slip into this idea where you feel that nothing, you know, makes a, makes a difference. Nothing means anything. And you would think that this would push him uh, more towards seeking truth. Uh, and he does talk about kind of the will to truth, but then he also, after that, kind of backs away from that and says, really what we mostly seek is a will to untruth. Um, he sees untruth as being something that is much more um, uh, uh, life-sustaining, much more species-sustaining. And what does he mean by this untruth? Um, he doesn't mean, you know, embracing things that are completely ridiculous and not based in fact. Uh, what he means is embrace. we tend to have to embrace things that give us a sense that there's a structure when there's no structure. Now, let me back up a little bit and kind of go into that a little more. Um, when, you, uh, when you wake up in the morning, you have somewhat of an idea of how your day is going to go. You know, if you're on your weekend, you have somewhat of an idea of, well, Monday morning rolls around, this is what's going to happen. Then, you know, I'm going to do this Monday afternoon, I'm going to do this Tuesday. And, you know, you, you have this idea of not only where your life is going, but where humanity in general is going. So we have this these projections. And in actuality, what they are is fictions. You know, we make up uh, this idea of who we are that we have this definite, stable identity. We make up this uh, fiction about where we're going to be. We make up fictions about how we would act in certain situations. And we make up fictions about how people, other people are. You know, we when you look at, you know, the people around you, the people you interact with, you make certain assumptions about what their personality is like, what they, things they would do and what things they wouldn't do. And this allows us to function. This allows us to survive. You know, we need these narratives, even if they're untrue, even if this isn't really what's going to happen on Monday, because, you know, maybe a, out of nowhere, a big car pulls up and somebody hands you millions of dollars and now you're retired and, and wealthy. Or, you know, you pass away before you get to work on Monday, or you go into work Monday morning and your job site is no longer there, or, you know, thousands and thousands of other things. But we can't function if we feel like there's absolutely no way of knowing what's going to happen from one moment to the next. And so we create these fictions, we create these untruths about the way the world is. And these untruths allow us to survive. They allow us to go through our daily life. Um, if you were completely, uh, you know, in a state where you had no idea what was going to happen to you in the next five minutes, chances are you would be paralyzed by fear and anxiety and you wouldn't be able to do anything whatsoever. You know, if you didn't have an idea of also that, you know, if you have children, your children are going to be born and uh, live a healthy life and have children, 
um, you probably wouldn't even have children because the the idea of doing this and then oh well they might not even you know make it to being born or they might die shortly after being born or they might grow up to be murderers or you know all of all of these things would paralyze you and keep you from being able to do anything so one of his ideas that's misunderstood is this will to untruth it's not that he's saying you know we uh live in unhealthy delusions he, what he's saying is unfortunately to survive to to get from today to tomorrow we have to sort of create these delusions now some of these delusions are created for us by society and some of them are created for us by ourselves and this has a lot to do with one of his other ideas known as the will to power now the will to power is uh, kind of a, a building off of what Schopenhauer did, but also taking it in a different direction. Remember, Schopenhauer's idea of the will is the will to life, the will to procreation. You know, this is the drive that drives everything, according to Schopenhauer, is this will to procreate. Um, but Nietzsche kind of changes this a little bit, and he, he realizes that this doesn't quite explain it. Um, and that the will is actually still a blind will. It's not a will we're in control of, but it's a will to overcome. It's a will to dominate. And he sees this as much more of the way that the world really works. Now, if you want to kind of, you know, think about this and sort of blend it in a little bit with scientific thinking, you know, think about, uh, you know, the idea of survival of the fittest and evolution, um, the organisms are all not only trying to reproduce, but they're trying to, um, survive and have their offspring survive. And so there's this will to become the dominant, to out reproduce everyone. If it, if it's, you know, if the will is simply about reproduction or to be the one in charge, um, you know, if, if, if it's in a situation where, uh, people are, you know, in a society, there's always a will, everyone wants to be in charge, at least people with what he considers to be a strong will to power. There's always this desire to be in charge of things. And this is one of the things that, again, gets twisted and corrupted. You know, the, the Nazis take this idea of the will to power, and they think, you know, he talks about the overman and the or, you know, what's also referred to sometimes as the Superman, and the, you know, the Nazis translate this to, oh, this is the genetically superior man who rightfully dominates over everyone else. Uh, Nietzsche would have actually been horrified and almost foresaw that coming, uh, that people would take it and run in that direction. He actually felt and spoke over and over again about how Germans were not the over men, uh, how, how they, that society was not, uh, a society of men that were, you know, superior. Um, and that's partially because his idea of the superior man, the overman, isn't the brute, you know, while there are, while there is the will to power, he sees different levels of it. You know, the lowest level would be just the will to power to out reproduce everyone else and have the most offspring. That's kind of a low level of the will to power. Uh, a little bit above that would be the brute, the one who dominates by force. Uh, the highest level of the will to power would be the person who overcomes 
himself, or I say himself because Nietzsche wasn't much of a fan of women like Schopenhauer, but that's a, that's another thing we will go into at a different time. But this this idea that there must be a self overcoming, that to, that to be the real overman, it it isn't based on dominating people outside of yourself, of overcoming people outside of you, but on overcoming you uh, until you sort of move into this higher form. Uh, in a lot of ways, you can see his overman as being similar in a lot of respects to Plato's philosopher king, sort of this um, person who is, you know, driven to overcome what they are, and this person who is not restrained by the laws and customs, uh, not as someone who does that to be destructive necessarily, but because someone needs to create new laws and new customs. And this is one of the things, one of the ways going back to his his discussion of nihilism is the problem. When you think nothing matters, it doesn't matter what I do, there's no direction, there's no ultimate right and wrong, um, anything is as good as anyone else. You know, Nietzsche realizes people can't actually live like that. They need to have some kind of uh, system that that gives them structure, and the overman he saw as, would be the person who would give this. Um, they would kind of live above the rest of the world, but they would also be uh, contributing to the rest of the world by giving them sort of a sense of direction. And this is a lot of what he has seen that religion has lost. You know, this is why he said God is dead. There's no longer small tribes all worshiping the same God and no other religions uh, contradicting and no other, you know, philosophies or sciences contradicting. Now we're in a world where it seems like everything is relative. Um, and for Nietzsche, he doesn't, you know, put his highest focus on building the perfect society. A lot of the philosophers wanted to build what they saw as the perfect society. You know, Hobbes wanted to do that. Locke wanted to do that. Marx wanted to do that. Um, and, and Nietzsche doesn't really see building the perfect society as being the solution because a lot of what he sees in society is, uh, um, and especially with the rise of, you know, democracy and things like that, he sees society as becoming more and more mediocre. Um, becoming less and less something that is able to produce anything great. Um, he's early on seeing the dangers of how much uh, industrialization, standardization, things like that, um, the ideas of you know everyone being equal will kind of cut off the top uh, and and make it so that every no one you know, sees leaders and no one sees strong people, no one sees thinkers as important. And in, in a lot of ways, they see them as dangerous and evil and need to be gotten rid of. And for Nietzsche, he sees this as a way of society committing suicide. Um, you know, society commits suicide when there's no more greatness, there's no more uh, there, there are no more people who can create new values and give new direction, um, that the society will basically just stagnate into basically what he considers cattle. Uh, people will just live to be comfortable. 
And this is one of the, the real issues that he had with modern life, as he saw that the more luxuries people had, the more they didn't want to do difficult things, the more they just wanted a life of ease, and they just wanted to be entertained, and they just wanted to, you know, uh, have memes and bumper stickers and slogans that told them what to do. You know, as uh, from my sarcasm, you can tell that you know, even though I may not agree with everything he talked about, he does have a lot of things that really seem to, a lot of ideas that really seem to nail it when it comes to modern life. You know, think about how many, how few people, you know, value being smart. Um, mo most people, if you give them the choice, would you rather be smart or beautiful and rich? Most people would choose beautiful and rich. Uh, they would rather have a life of luxury rather than a life of struggle, a life of, you know, more fulfilling intellectually, uh, but less fulfilling as far as stability. And he saw this as a weakness that most people had, um, and that he called them the herd. You know, this idea that they just want to be comfortable cows, they just want to be happy and content and they don't want to have to struggle for anything. And he's really someone who sees if you really want anything that's worth it, if you want anything of real value, then there's struggle involved. You know, look at the, you know, greatest people in every field, whether they're musicians, athletes, scholars, scientists. You know, these, these people are, are people who put in a lot of work, a lot of lonely hours, a lot of you know, blood, sweat, and tears into what they're doing. And they do this whether the, you know, reward is immediate or not. They do this because they're driven to do this. Um, they don't do this because it's the easy thing to do. Whereas most people would rather just have some stability and take the easy way out. And so Nietzsche really does, when he sort of lays out the will to power, he doesn't lay it out to be a system of, you know, these tyrants that rule over everyone else and crush them. He sees it as more of there needs to be a class of people who are somewhat separated from everyone else because they're pursuing other things. Uh, they're pursuing wisdom. They're pursuing new directions. Um, but yet still somewhat tied in that these ideas will filter back and give the rest of society a direction. Um, so it's not a leading society by force. It's a sort of going away, coming up with these things. And then as society's ready to move into new areas, it can move into new areas. Uh, he also sees in the will to power sort of what he considers a negative will to power. And this is another reason he criticizes God and religion so much, uh, especially Christianity. You know, this is this is another thing where you can tell the Nazis took him way out of context when they used him to, you know, uh, to justify what they did with the Jews and the gypsies and the disabled, um, was that he didn't see the Christians as being higher than the Jews. He felt the Jews were at least a people of laws, a people of customs and traditions, whereas he saw the Christians as being uh, people who would rather look down on everyone else. You know, think about the, you know, the sort of the stereotype of the people who go to church so that they can, you know, 
talk talk badly about the sinners and the people who aren't there or the people that you know want to flaunt how holy they are and how religious they are just to prove that you know they're better than the other people he saw religion and in, in especially christianity as being a way of the herd um forcing the higher men into uh servitude forcing them you know, out of power, sort of restricting them, enslaving them. Um, and, you know, he talks about it a, a lot as being sort of a way of, uh, uh, of sort of a will to power through envy and jealousy, that, that the herds who don't do anything want to still feel better than, you know, the scientists and the philosophers and the, you know, the great inventors and the thinkers, uh, and the only way they can do that is to sort of say, well, you know, that's uh, that's something that's sinful. That's something that's uh, against God. And so you're a bad person and you're just going to hell. He, he views it as almost a way of getting back, a way of uh, sort of shooting at the people who are your betters. Now, again, whether you believe or I should say agree or disagree with his analysis of things um he does make a lot of points that you know when when you look around they do strike a chord there are people that you know for them it seems like their religion isn't about anything else but feeling like they're superior to everyone else um there are a lot of people who you know look at look at the news you get these groups like the proud boys um they you know they're proud of who they are simply because there's their own skin color and that somehow makes them better than other people. Even though, you know, they haven't done anything with their lives. They've basically just been, you know, drinking violent idiots. Um, you know, somehow they feel that all of the accomplishments of Western thinkers, um, you know, that's, that's their heritage. Uh, even though they contribute nothing to that heritage, um, except for, you know, drinking and violence is is all they put forth. Uh, this this these are groups that he would very much see. You know, the Nazis the during World War Two and the the you know the new Nazis that we have now. He would very much see these people as being lower men. He would not see them as being upper men. In fact, if you read in some of his passages, he actually talks about the overmen are not people who will come from one particular race. He believes they're people who would come from all races, like all races would be producing people who qualify as overmen. Um, so his idea that, you know, this idea that, well, this only comes from one race, the Aryans, that was a corruption of the Nazis at first. And a lot of that, unfortunately, also had to do with his sister. Um, his sister uh, was lived longer than he did and, and really went a long way towards corrupting the things that he wrote to seem like they were saying those things. Okay, uh, I'm going to break off for now. Uh, like I said, he is someone who is very influential in the 20th century, so we will be coming back to him, especially when we start talking about some of the 20th century philosophers. We're going to kind of talk about some of the links to him, and in the future we will definitely be doing Lots of episodes on him in particular uh, once we get past these introductory episodes. 
but I hope this gives you a little bit of a, a sense of some of the range of his philosophy, and also a sense that you can't just listen to a little bit or read a little bit and understand him. You really have to dive into the texts and read whole texts and read different interpretations of it, and then you'll start to get a better sense of what he is. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.